Numbers chapter 11. We'll look at a couple of verses there because we'll make reference to them. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in Proverbs chapter 3. If you're kind of new to the Bible, it's always good to realize most Bibles, if you open them up right in the middle, you, the book of Psalms will open up to you. And then just go right until you hit the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. We'll begin in Hebrews, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And then down to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And speaking of faith. And then in Proverbs chapter 3, two very, very famous verses in the Bible. Uh, so many people know them. So many people have them as their life verse. It might be the first time that you've ever read them today. And we want them to become your friend as well. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, and all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So a little something that's on my heart as we head into the new year. Trust the Lord is in it, and it will be a blessing to you as well. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, we thank you that you are our God. And we know that's a big deal. And we know that that's the single biggest difference that can occur in a person's life. Lord, we know the quality of life that we had before we come to know you. And we know what we have now. Thank you for being the God that you are. And thank you, Lord, this morning for being our God. Thank you that you've called us, Lord, into your family. Thank you that that's your commitment that you've made to us and a commitment that you take seriously. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who is big enough to rest in. And we thank you, Lord, that even today we don't have to turn to this passage just on our own with our own minds and our own intellect and our own uh, thoughts and our own emotions. But, Lord, we can turn to this passage in fellowship with you. And so we do. And we ask that you would open this up, Lord, this morning and help us to hear your voice in all of this. It means the world to us to hear your voice from your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Humanly speaking, we are living in a very, very uncertain world, and we are living in uh, extraordinarily uncertain times. I don't know that in any time in my lifetime, some of you, maybe you could differ with me because you're a little bit older, but I can say, related to the span of my life, I have never, ever been alive in a season in this world where things give the appearance of being more uncertain than they are today. I think about the wars around the world. I think about the geopolitical instability of the world. So many fuses on so many countries and so Many people with lit matches in the room to where this place can blow up geopolitically overnight in a dramatic way. I think about the consequences and the continuing continuation, really, of the economic meltdown that continues, not only in this nation, but in the whole wide world. And there is that sense that people have, that here we are four or five years into it, and we are no closer 
to getting that horse back in the corral than we were four or five years ago and that, in fact, things may even be worse than they've ever been in terms of the structural problems that we're creating for ourselves, and not just in the United States, but to realize the whole world has become so small and that if Europe topples, it affects us and China and India and all around and the uncertainty that people feel in terms of the economic world that is all around us and that it feels like a a house of cards that is just being held together by some slick maneuver legislatively this week in order for people not to realize just how serious the situation is. And then, of course, everything ties to what we are as a country and as a world morally and spiritually. And we'd feel a lot better, I know that we would as Christians, if we had a sense that we've hit bottom that people are recognizing the problems for what they are, that man, uh, kind, men and women alike in places of power and otherwise have the sense that, all right, we're not as smart as we think we are, we're not as brilliant as we think we are, and so let's begin to make some changes because we sense that we've hit rock bottom. There isn't a sense that we've hit rock bottom, and morally and spiritually there's no sense of that. The uncertain times that we're in the middle of today historically would have caused a nation and a world to race to God in repentance and revival. And there is no repentance in our country. And there is no repentance in our world. And there is no mass turning to God, though that that is happening individually and family by family. We thank the Lord for that. But we don't see that there is lessons learned morally and spiritually. We just see the continued drive in the direction away from God and away from His ways. And so, and the more that that happens, the more our confidence related to the hour in which we live is also affected. And then we see the violence. And I don't think it's just the fact that We've got 24-hour-a-day news and so many news channels, and they dig up every single item. There is the sense that our world is becoming more fearful and more violent, not just in terms of wars and on a national level, but on an individual level, and where we're exposed to news articles and clips and all kinds of different things where we are watching people become progressively animal-like and savage. And I'm not just talking about what happened in Connecticut. I'm talking about what happens every single day in our country and in our world because the further you move away from God, then the more animal-like we become. God is the one who keeps us safe and reminds us that we've been created in his image and to live a life higher than life as animals and just doing whatever our temper tells us to do or our lusts tell us to do or our thoughts tell us to do or whatever that might be. And so we see people becoming more and more unrestrained. We see people becoming more beast-like and animal-like in their behavior. And the fact of the matter is, as we look around the world today, it's hard to find any part of it that speaks of stability, any place that anyone could move that would be better than another place, so to speak, or park their money or whatever it might be that people are trying to do. There's a sense that we're all in this together and all of it is a very unstable, uncertain situation. Now, typically we respond to uncertainty in one of two ways, and that is to respond to it with fear or to respond with it to it with faith. And the first tendency of our flesh is to respond to uncertainty with fear because that's what we do. That's what the natural man does. It doesn't take any effort to become fearful. Nobody has to sit down and say, all right, I need to look at this situation and become fearful about it. You have to do that with faith. (laughs) But you don't have to do that with fear. It doesn't require any special effort on our part 
because our old nature just naturally gravitates toward it. And so we count up our resources, whether they're material or whether they're emotional or whether they are mental or intellectual or whether they are physical, and we put them all up against the cause of our uncertainty. And if what we are and what we have is not able to defang that uncertainty in our life, then we collapse and we give in to fear. That's how it works. I am facing problems that are bigger than my personal resources, and so I move into fear. Now, to react with faith requires effort on our part, as I mentioned, because it's something that we have to choose to do over and against our natural inclination to fear. And as we'll see in just a moment, faith is something that we need to decide to do. It doesn't just happen. It's something that we need to decide to have happen in our life, and there's a certain way to do that. And sometimes the problems become so big, not just in the world, not just nationally and internationally, but sometimes they can become so big in our own individual personal lives that as we face them, we're sense, uh, kind of overwhelmed with this uh, feeling of helplessness in the face of all of it. And we think to ourselves, what in the world can I do? I was never a part of the family getting to where that it is. I was never a part of the decision-making that has brought our country to where that it is. I was never a part of the decision-making that has brought our country into the condition that it's in. And so there's that sense of what in the world can I do? What can I do in order to make a difference? What can I do to change these things? And if no one can supply us with an answer to those questions, then we decide it's time to get afraid and to become very, very afraid because it seems to us then that all there is to do is to just kind of look out for ourselves and, uh, uh, or sit passively and wait for the inevitable drop of the other shoe. But thankfully... In our Bible passage here in Proverbs, we're informed that we're not at the mercy of life circumstances as Christians, not at all, because we are in a relationship with someone who is greater than his creation and greater than anything that we'll face in this world. And so this passage tells us that we are not at the mercy of life circumstances, whether they are international or national or personal, but it tells us how we're to respond upon seeing the uncertainties of life that want to produce fear inside of us. And he tells us the first thing that we need to do in all of this, verse 5, is to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And the word trust means to trust It means to put my faith in, to put my confidence in. And so we are to put our faith, our confidence in the Lord with all of our heart. Now, I think that sometimes it's good to think about, before we even talk for a moment about what faith is, to talk about what it isn't. There's so many goofy definitions of what faith is in in the world today and even sometimes in the Christian world. When God calls us to faith, faith is not positive thinking. It isn't me uh, taking some horrible reality that I'm facing and then believing that it is going to go away if I ignore it long enough or I pretend that it doesn't exist. Faith is not a feeling because faith can be a stable thing in our life and our feelings are very unstable. Faith is not, as so many people think, a leap in the dark. They call it blind faith. Faith is also not presumption. It is not me making decisions in my life to do something and then and taking that so-called step of faith and then uh, saying, now, God, I've done this and you've got to work this thing together for good or you've got to fix this thing and make this decision that I've made to prosper. That's not what faith is at all. 
Well, what is faith? And how does it operate in the nitty-gritty of life on planet Earth? And we remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that great uh, verse on faith that we studied a number of weeks ago as we were studying the book of, of Hebrews. And again, let me read it to you. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And so as we saw, faith is living in an absolute confidence in what God has said and what God has promised, even when we don't see the fulfillment of that promise yet. Faith believes that the promise, the fulfillment of that promise is going to come even if I don't see it just yet. We quoted at that time the Living Bible on Hebrews 11.1. 1. Let me do it once again. It declares, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want, speaking of God's promises, is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. Faith is believing something to be true because God has said it. Even if I have no physical reason for believing it to be true, then the fact that He has said it. And if we don't see the fulfillment of one of His promises yet in our life, faith responds to that by saying, I know that God's Word and His promises are going to have the final say in this situation. Not man, not the world, not other people, not other decision makers, not even myself, but God is going to have the final say. His Word is going to have the final say in my situation, and that's faith. Now, how does it operate in a person's life? I think the Apostle Paul put it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, of the flesh, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul is describing the disciplined mind that we need to exercise as Christians all of the time. But it becomes more critical to do so when we find ourselves in situations where the margins are super narrow and there isn't room for any mistakes. And so Paul is describing a disciplined mind, and a disciplined mind is a mind that tests every thought and every emotion by the Word of God and only allows those thoughts or those emotions to remain in our mind and in our hearts that match the Word of God. And if that thought does not match the Word of God, we recognize it as something that is exalting itself against the knowledge of God, against what we know to be true about God, and thus it is a lie, and we take it captive for the lie that it is, and we cast it out of our minds. We're not to allow just any old thought or any old emotion in our lives to be introduced and then run free for hours or minutes or days or weeks or years, we test these things that come into our minds and into our hearts. And so if it doesn't match the Word of God, we look at that and we say, Lord, this does not match your Word. This is not something that is worthy of someone who knows you as their God. It exalts itself against you and your truth, and so I reject it and I cast it out of my mind. Now take, for example, when fear grips us. What do I do when that happens? I turn to the Bible. 
And I ask myself and try to find now where are the passages in the Bible because the Bible is my instruction book. What does the Bible tell me as a Christian that I am to do with fear in my life? I'm never going to be misled by the instruction I get from the Word of God. And so I turn to the Gospels and I come to John chapter 14, verse 27. My Savior is speaking and Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. And then here it is. Neither let it be afraid. Jesus speaks to you and I in the face of fear and says we are not to live by fear. Neither neither be afraid. Somebody comes to you and says, what in the world? Why aren't you the crazy, frantic wreck that all the rest of us are? Don't you have a television? Don't you watch the news? Aren't you on the Internet? Aren't you seeing the whole? Don't you understand how bad things are? Why in the world aren't you living in fear like everybody else? Because there's a verse in John chapter 14 in which my Savior tells me I am not to invest in fear. I am not to fear. That is a command from him. He tells me not to do it. And because he tells me not to do it, I have the freedom not to do it. First John, John writes there in first John chapter four, verse 18. He said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So that tells me that when I am gripped by fear, it tells me that the reason that I'm gripped by fear is not all of the circumstances that are happening in my life. Those are the peripheral reasons. The real reason that I'm gripped by fear as a child of God is because, he, he tells us there, is that love, my love has not made, been made perfect uh, it, it, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who, is not, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. In other words, the cause of my fear, the core cause of my fear is because I do not recognize how much God loves me. And if I knew how much God loves me, if I really took the scene of Calvary and that great demonstration of love and put it up against the thing that is causing me fear and to realize the God that I trust in has this kind of a heart toward me, then fear would go away. And so if it fear, if it doesn't, it doesn't match the word of God, it exalts itself against what I know to be true about God And so we identify that thought as a lie. We take it captive, cast it out of our minds as as something that's not worthy of someone who has the God that we have, that loves us the way that he does. And so it goes. It doesn't just work with fear. It works with uh, hopelessness or despair. It works with anger. It works with hate. It works with bitterness. It works with unforgiveness, any thought, any emotion. Well, someone might say, you know, I did that. One time I was angry or one time I was fearful and I took that thought captive because it didn't match the Word of God and I cast it out of my mind and it came right back five seconds later. What do you do? Go back to step one. Test that thought by the Word of God. It still doesn't match the Word of God, does it? It's exalting itself against what we know about God. So we take it captive and cast it out of our minds. And you know, a funny thing happens. Now it stays out of our minds for 10 seconds. And a person may need to do that because of the depth of the trial, or the depth of the things that you're facing. You may need to do that 60 times an hour on the first day. But if you do it, Tomorrow it will only be 30 times an hour. And then a week from now it will only be one time an hour. And then two weeks from now it will hardly come into your mind at all because you've established a disciplined mind 
for how to deal with the anything and everything that has a way of coming into our hearts and into our minds. And so, and, and ultimately we develop this thing called the disciplined mind, testing every thought, every emotion, every decision by the Word of God because only God's Word can be trusted. So this is a time in human history. It's always true, but we're alive right now. This is a time to where we want to take every aspect of our life and bring it to the Word of God. God, what does your Word say about this? God, do, what do you want me to do here? What, do I go left? Do I go right? Do you have instruction here? And testing everything by the Word of God. And then obeying the Word of God when the outward circumstances can sometimes look like that won't make any difference. But it will make a difference. Sometimes people think that to choose to trust in God is to do nothing. Well, what are you doing in this situation? I'm trusting God. Oh, no, it's come to that. We say, what are you doing? Aren't you, aren't, you, aren't you moving the funds over here and then this and that? And aren't you making ten, ten phone calls to everybody that owes you a favor? And the whole, aren't you working this thing? No, I'm, I'm trusting God in this thing. And they think that to trust God is to do nothing. To trust God is to do the most powerful thing in the universe. To exercise faith is Active. It is the most active thing that we can do because it engages God in terms of His promises. And it allows Him the room to do and to be fully what He wants to do and to be in the situation. Rather than seeing us frantically deal with it now, He's got us sitting quietly waiting for his instruction, the situation in front of him, and he's not trying to bat me out of it every ten seconds so he can clean the thing up or make it what he wants to be. Faith is to do something. Faith is to do the most powerful thing we can do in any situation that we face. I'll tell you, no good parent would ever needlessly disappoint the trust or the faith of their children in us. You wouldn't do it, would you? We would spend our lives to the last breath. We would give the most heroic effort to not disappoint the faith or the trust of our children in us. How much more, God? You're His child. Don't ever forget that. He brought you into His family. You're His son. You're His daughter. That's a relationship that He takes very, very seriously. And the Lord loves you. And the Lord loves me more than we will ever understand. Even when we get into heaven and we have a perfect body, we still will not have a full comprehension of the love of God for us. We will still be in awe of the cross and the sacrifice, that great demonstration of the Father's love toward us in heaven. It will never cease to be a mystery to us, a little bit bigger than us, always producing awe and worship toward Him. And God will never disappoint us in our faith toward Him. Would you believe that this morning? God will never disappoint your faith that you put in Him in any situation, large or small. This would be a great time in the sermon, if we had the time for it, to invite anyone and everyone who's walked with the Lord for 40 years, for 50 years, for 60 years, 
for 70 years to come up and be given a mic and to testify to the trustworthiness of God to His Word and how faithful He always is to His Word. And even when it looks like the situation becomes one where we look at it and say His Word and promise has failed, that opportunity is gone, that time window is past, He has left me disappointed, you hold on to your hat. Because all it means is that God looks at the same situation and knows that if He handles it on a different timetable, in a different way, that it is an even greater blessing for your life and my life and for the kingdom of God. He will never leave you disappointed related to your faith or your trust that you have put in Him. He notices your faith and He will always reward it. Would you believe that? He always rewards faith. He's not a slot machine. But He notices faith and from His Father's heart He always honors it and He always respects it and, 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 and rewards it. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and then here it is, in the context of faith, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, notice second, we're not to lean on our own understanding, he tells us in verse 5. We're not to lean on our own wisdom, our own discernment, our own a capacity for assessing a situation. And it's beautiful because the Lord tells us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And because He knows us so well, He tells us then, and lean not on your own understanding. Because of a natural inclination that is so strong in some of us, that as soon as we find our face with something that is uncertain, He knows our first reaction to that will be to begin to apply our wisdom to the situation. We're going to take control of this and we're going to fix this thing and, and we move on our own to do it, relying solely upon our own wisdom and our own knowledge and our own understanding and, and never getting God's wisdom and His discernment and His understanding. And then ultimately we miss God's will for our lives in the situation, which is the one thing we must not do. And so not leaning on our own Understanding means that we have a healthy distrust of self. So when things occur, and boy, here is the fix-it man wants to just get in there and fix it. I'm a fixer. You come to me and you want to tell me a problem? Just to tell me the problem, you've come to the wrong guy. That's what your husband is there for, or your wife. Poor Karen, my wife. Somebody brings a problem to me, my mind starts to work on the solution. Because there's more problems coming, so let's just fix this one and take care of it. We don't really have time to talk all of these things through endlessly. So I got a Mr. Fix-It right inside of myself. So I, I recognize the need for the, the warning here that healthy distrust of self. Jeremiah put it this way. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself, is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. If you have to walk from here to get to your car after the service, you're not big enough and you're not wise enough to solve your own problems. We say, who's bigger and who's wiser? The one who is with you right now in this room and sitting in your car right now. The God who is omnipresent. The God who is everywhere all at the same time. Well, what in the world could be better than leaning on our own understanding? And some of us, that's a legitimate question. And so he tells us next in verse 6, we are to acknowledge God in all of our ways. What's the best way to acknowledge God in all of our ways? Prayer. Prayer. 
God, I have this situation has come into my life. This fear has come into my life. This uncertainty has come into my life. This trial has come into my life. My natural tendency is to want to just grab this thing by the horns and solve it on my own. But Lord, I'm not big enough for this. And so, Lord, I turn to you. I don't have the foggiest idea what to do in this situation. Not truly, not really. Would you please give me the wisdom? The beautiful thing about prayer is prayer is always an expression of our faith in God. People say, I don't have any faith right now. Do you pray? Yeah, I pray. All right, you have faith. Faith is an expression, or prayer is an expression of faith to God, and that's how God views it. Think about what a privilege it is to be able to consult with God concerning every detail in our lives. And that's the privilege that we have, to talk with him about every single detail in our lives and to seek his wisdom in that, that circumstance, that situation. And again, that's always valuable to us, but it becomes especially valuable to us when we realize, Lord, I can't make a mistake here what it will do to my family, what it will do to my children, what it will do to my reputation, what it will do to my Christian service. Lord, I see how far-reaching the consequences will be to what I do at this moment in time. And so, Lord, I need your wisdom here and not my pot shots at what is required. In 2013... It is so important that we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray about everything and then to pray some more and to talk with God about every single situation in our life. Jesus gave a parable in the Gospels where he talked about this woman who came to a judge And she had a request to make of the judge. And she made her request. And she kept coming and she kept coming and she kept coming and she kept coming. And this perseverance that she had in her so-called prayer to this judge. And finally the judge gave her her request in order just basically to get rid of her. Now God, Jesus wasn't saying, now that's how you deal with God. Drive him crazy till he just can't. You again. All right, what do you want? It's all yours. Just leave me alone for five minutes. That's not what he was saying. He's talking about if an unjust judge will do that with a powerless woman, how much more will a heavenly father do that to his child when his child comes to him? And he prefaces that, that the, Luke's gospel prefaces that particular parable that Jesus told by saying the purpose of the, of the parable was that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. We can very conceivably, if you read what the Bible has to say about the last days and what the condition of the world will be in the last days, But we could be, apart from a revival, moving very progressively toward a very wild world, even more than we can even think about in a room at this this point in time. And is it possible that the circumstances of the world or even the individual circumstances of our own life can come to a place where we will either pray or we will lose heart and there's no in-between? And we're headed to that place if a person doesn't feel, if you don't already feel that you are in that place. And the interesting thing about this Christian life is the Christianity and the relationship that we had with God in 2012, that won't do for 2013 because everything changes. God has bigger things that he wants to do in you and that he wants to do through you for the kingdom of God. Problems and situations and circumstances, they're only going to get bigger as the Lord's return approaches. And it will be just that simple. I don't have to badger or 
beat people up or try to motivate you to pray. You know what your prayer life is or what it isn't. But we're already here, and it's only going to increase to where for us as God's people, we will either become men and women of prayer or we will lose heart. We will get buried under fear because of the condition of the world. And so if you don't pray, you need to start to pray as a Christian. And if you do pray, it's a good time to begin to pray even more. I want to pray even more and even more than I do. It's a great thing that's on my heart as I look at the coming year. And I already pray and I already pray a lot. And so it isn't a thing of of now, you know, trying to... It's only if the Lord bears witness to your heart on this particular issue. But to look at the coming year and maybe it's time to start a personal prayer group. You say, I'm waiting for the church to start. You don't have to wait for the church to start something. You have three or four friends or one or two friends who have the same heart toward prayer to be lifting up your own lives and your needs and your family and the church and the kingdom of God and this community and missionaries and the big wide world that we're in. You guys band together and begin to pray. Maybe you can't get together geographically and you could Skype. You can't get together in one place or you can have one or two friends and say, I'm going to call you every Monday morning at 9 o'clock and we're going to pray for these issues. We're going to honor God with our faith and then we're going to sit on the edge of our seat and wait and see what God does in, in answer to our prayer. And to just begin to do that kind of thing. But to all, and always, 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 to always obey the impulse by the Holy Spirit to pray. Never stuff that. Never stuff that. There's always a reason. When you're talking with someone and he speaks to your heart and says, pray for them right now. Pray for them right now. Whatever, whatever prompting of the Holy Spirit, there's a reason for it, for faith to be directed to God in that situation and to be praying for Him. And this is an important part of this coming year, an important part of staying free from the fear that comes in a world that is outwardly speaking uncertain, the importance of prayer. And then the promise he gives us, and we close with this in verse 6, is that he will direct our paths. And the word for direct is a very interesting one in the Hebrew. It means more than saying, okay, um, I want you to go left or right in a fork in the road. It includes that, but it's more than that. It literally means to make straight. He will direct your paths, our paths. He will make straight to make smooth, to make level, to make right your paths. In other words, God is not promising, only promising to direct our paths or our lives, as wonderful as that is, but declaring that the path and the life that He will lead us onto will be straight, it will be prepared, He will remove obstacles. It will be right. In other words, it will be perfect for us. And you stop and think about that promise and you let it sink in and you think about the value of that kind of a promise. He promises that He will direct our paths. What kind of a value can you put upon that? To know that in the coming year, no matter what happens in this whole big wide world, internationally or personally or anything in between, God has a path for me. God has a path for you this year that is perfectly chosen by Him for you and He will walk with us on that path. I'll tell you, that's priceless. Because the only safe and blessed and peace-filled life is the life that is lived in His will. You can never find peace in a physical something. You can never find peace in a physical location. You can never find peace in a self-defined portfolio. 
You can never find peace in those places because the problems of life and the problems of this world will outstrip those resources. We can only find peace in the one who is greater than all of the things that would rob us of our peace, and only God is that greater. He is the only source, true source of peace in life, and thus the only path that is peace-filled is the one that he chooses for us and that he walks with us on. I remember hearing many years ago when I was a new Christian, so we're talking decades now. It's been a great decades. And I remember as a new Christian hearing a pastor teach on a cassette tape. That'll tell you a little something. They were just invented at that time. And the pastor, if I gave his name, he was teaching a sermon. If I gave his name, 80% of you would know his name. But I'll keep his privacy even though he talked openly about it. And he gave just a simple little illustration that just stuck with me all of my life. And he said, he and his wife, he's pastoring a church, very, very successful church, very blessed church. And they were living in a little house. And so now he's making a little bit more money and all, and they, would have, they wanted a little more space. And so what is there to pray about? So they left the house that they were renting, and they moved into a bigger house to rent. And they got all of their furnishings and everything into that house and into those rooms. And then at the end of the day, they stood there and they looked at themselves, and they both realized God is not here. We left where God was for our lives. And now, as physically superior as this is, this means nothing to us because we've lost the peace of God and the confidence that comes with being in the middle of of His will for our, our life. And I listened to him speak of that, and it had an impact upon me as a new Christian But God has always kept that alive in my heart because it has had a growing impact upon my life and upon my heart the longer and the longer and the longer that I have walked with the Lord. The only place of peace, the only glory place to live in life is the place that God has chosen for us You can be in the most beautiful physical location in the world. You can own a home on the Italian coast. And if that is not where God wants you, God wants you being a light for Him in keys, you will have more joy and more peace and more satisfaction and blessing in keys than you will ever get in rummaging through that villa on that Italian coast. You can be in the most beautiful place in the world, but have it not be a a God-directed place, and it has nothing to offer us as a child of God. It is a liability to us and to our peace. And yet God can put us in the most humble place in the whole wide world. And when we know you have put us here for your pleasure, and I am here under your direction, then I know I'm living the greatest life that I personally can be living on planet Earth. And it all comes with a God-directed life and a God-directed path. And God promises that for us in the year 2013. And that's the kind of confidence that God wants us to have concerning the coming year as we just simply trust in Him, as we reject our own self-will, our own decision-making, and as we make every issue of our life an issue of prayer because for the the fact of the matter is for every child of God is that there really are no uncertain times 
because the God that we love and the God that we obey and the God who loves us knows nothing of uncertainty. Nothing. There's nothing that is uncertain to him. And there was nothing uncertain to him when he put every one of those promises in this Bible for you and for me to rest in because he knows that we can rest in them. He knows only certainty, the absolute certainty of his faithfulness to his promises to us in this coming year. Let's believe it. Let's enjoy it. Let's rest in it. And let's now stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God that you are. As the kids, my kids used to sing in Sunday school, you're so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Lord, we pray for the adult equivalent of that in each and every one of our hearts right now as we look ahead to the coming year. And Lord, we ask that you would do great things inside of us, that you would do great things through us, that you would cause our lives to make a great impact for your kingdom in this world, that your light and your truth and your wisdom and your glory, Lord, that it would be more seen in our lives than ever as the world grows darker all around us. And Lord, that it might bring by your Holy Spirit a great attractiveness to people who are yet to put their faith in your Son. Lord, we look forward to the year 2013. We profess from this place, this little speck on planet earth, that there's nothing uncertain about 2013 in your eyes and then thus nothing uncertain as it relates to us. Give us a joy. Give us a peace. Give us a faith, Lord, that is proportional to you as we leave this place today and head out into the gift that this new year is. And we ask these things of you, Lord, for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.